This is Acid Horizon, a theory podcast which confronts global crisis and the specter of a world that could be free. This is episode 17, Phaedrus Fun, a reading of Plato using Nietzsche, Foucault, Deleuze, and Derrida, with Taylor Adkins. Thank you for joining us. Hey folks, this is Craig. This is our episode on Plato's dialogue, The Phaedrus. When we came up with this episode idea, we thought to ourselves, what would a philosophy podcast be like if you never did a Plato episode? Not a very good one. That's why we decided to do this. Well, actually, Taylor Adkins helped us land on this specific dialogue. This dialogue is pretty important because it touches on a question that we bring up quite often in this podcast. What is the nature of desire? One of our goals here was just to riff and try to come up with some interesting lines of thought or possible interpretations that we could develop at a later time. This particular platonic dialogue often appears on the philosophy syllabus at a university, so this might be a nice place to revisit should you ever run up against this dialogue in a context where you have to write a paper. In any event, before we get started, I wanted to give a huge shout out to all of our patrons and other supporters. We have a lot of new folks on board helping us out in different ways, and I just wanted to say thank you to all of you. And it's never too late to subscribe to us on Patreon or to support us in any number of ways, including visiting our merch store, for which we have the link in the notes for this show. Without further ado, let's get to our discussion with Taylor and see what's going on inside the Phaedrus. How are you doing, Taylor? Oh man, I'm I'm great. I'm good. Just listening to you guys. You know, uh, Will brought up. We could obviously, you know, bring up someone like Derrida who would turn things on its head and say, you know, writing precedes speech and all that. But I right. also don't want to necessarily go into that either. Um, Oh, I just read the the Pharmacon essay this morning. <laughs> really? So, I mean, you're yeah. doing prep for this. Now, does he say that there, or does he already say that earlier in like in an essay in writing a difference, or maybe in in of grammatology? I, mean, I assume in of grammatology, he has one of those moments where he's like writing precedes speech and whatever. And then, yeah, in of grammatology, he he makes that claim. What he's going to sort of do in his introduction of difference, which I'm sure I pronounced so poorly so the Doridians can just bash me over the head. No, you're fine. <laughs> Eight out of ten. Um, I, I'm not nailing the, the French courses. <laughs> but uh, so, I, yeah, I mean, it, that is a huge part of, of grammatology. Um, I, I think one, one place where I would like to, to go with, with Derrida um, would be specifically in the way that he addresses um, how Socrates, in particular here, sort of tries to make writing into some sort of stagnant and crude. Uh, you know, he's, he, when Socrates says speechwriter, he almost says it with a level of like contempt. The way in which like a true rhetorician today would like you know lambast a politician for being you know tethered to a 
uh, a teleprompter or something. Well, it's the same way. It's the same way that that uh, Plato obviously has scorn for the word rhetoric, right? I mean, the way right. he he like all and, and it's 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 debatable that he coined the term, but it's one of the he's one of the sources for that that word in Greek, and so there is that kind of stank on it, right? But anyway, keep keep going. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think too, like this is where you can start to make those distinctions between like Aristotle and Plato as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, but but maybe like one area where I'd want to start is the, it's generally believed that like what we where we actually get the good de- like definition of the soul in the dialogues is uh, Phaedo uh, and not mm. this. Uh, but I think one thing that's generally overlooked because the way in which this text was presented to me when I first was exposed to it was that, oh, this is just simply about what makes a good speech. Like, mm-hmm. what makes a true philosopher? What does the philosopher love? But at the top end of this speech, um, you know, we get sort of this ornamental explanation of of the Eros, and that's kind of where I want to, to, to delve in, because it's where I'm the most confused. In this dialogue, it seems less a definition of the soul and more uh, another another example of uh, Socrates having to turn to myth or allegory or or narrative in order to advance the the dialogue, kind of like the function of the cave and these other things, right? So it's mm. definitely not a definition in that sense. That happens all over Plato. It happens pretty notably in the in the Statesman too. You know when they they hit that apparatic moment. Plato's like, all right, hey, let me uh, just recount the uh, myth of ages to you right now. Right. And then he's like, and we're done. No, and that's part of what's interesting, too. And I was talking to you about this earlier, is that like, uh, in a certain sense, you can sometimes get more than what you paid for with a, with a dialogue because they'll spend so much time taking stock of like the things that they have said. This is true of the Republic, too, where okay. it, it's almost like, perpetually reteaching you it, you know what it reminds me of like if you watch like serials on television it'll be like last week on- yeah can we can we have a skip recap button you know like- <laughs> yeah right like sometimes i desperately want that because so much of that is like it's like uh Phaedrus going like okay well what have we done so far like but i i, I appreciate it in a certain sense that you actually get a, a real sense of the way in which the Platonist dialogue, the the dialectic is supposed to take shape because Mm. what's actually happening is while these two people disagree, there's sort of an interlocutor moment there too that sort of can establish a general narrative of what the final assertions are going to be, what the actual conclusion is. will be once you reach sort of the end once you know socrates says ah let's go like let's move from the market let's leave this place that's the way that i approach this reading this time around it's been a long time since i looked at the phaedrus so coming into this i was thinking man i hope taylor's gonna do the heavy lifting on this episode because uh, i'm going to try to advance a very modest interpretation of it but the thing that always strikes me when I go back to Plato, especially just reading any other philosophy, is that you have to make sense of the totality of the dialogue, not only in terms of its arguments, but what's happening at the metaphilosophical level. You know, now that we have the whole history of philosophy after Plato with us in tow as we go back into it, 
the the interpretation that I landed on for today, and and I want this to be a tentative interpretation, just to give a middle finger to Socrates right now, just to say once again that there is no singular interpretation, but we'll experiment with this one today. Is what I see Socrates and Phaedrus trying to do? They're talking about. Ultimately, they're talking about techniques of desire. The interpretation that I'm kind of working on in the last 48 hours is, how can we view this dialogue itself as an agon of desire, of desiring production, and basically a discussion, an agon of ideas about how best to find out what a body can do? Because clearly, right away, they're going after Lysias. They feel that his sort of no-strings-attached approach to uh, sexual relationships is is lacking in something. In my interpretation, I think it is, but I don't think Socrates' take on desire is great, in my opinion. So, you know, maybe we can go into that a little bit more. I brought in the notion of puissance and pouvoir in French, and uh, like I was just thinking about that as I was developing this kind of theory of desire. And I remembered Deleuze's J is for Joy in Abecedaire, where he talks about basically that which composes like a milieu of desire, or, you know, in the form of a romantic relationship or a friendship, is a combination of, you know, good power and bad power. Think about all the relationships that are a compounding of affects, a development of affectivity. But then beyond that, there's of course obstacles in relationships too. And no single relationship is one way or the other. It's basically a host of forces all lumped in together. And so, what I see the dialogue is trying to negotiate is what is the best way to live? Like, there's sort of a good life question about, you know, how to deal with romantic relationships. But not only that, what can a body do? How can we escape the apparatus of capture of, for example, the madness that's induced by falling in love, but we don't get to experience the the richness and the joy of love and the madness of love if we try to live the life that Lysias is trying to live? Well, this is why, like, the the taking stock of oneself is so important, right? Like, again, you're going to do Deleuze, I'm going to do Foucault. The, sort of the uh, the element here that I think that is universal is the uh, is the ability to kind of heed the warnings that that you receive. So maybe one place where we can start is sort of the mythic understanding that he provides in. I believe the sec- his second speech, where he discusses sort of the chariot is this sort of molarity of the individual, right? And then there are these two horses that guide the chariot. One is you know duty bound, you know always you know perceiving things in sort of a heightened sort of intellectual sense, and then the other is one that's drawn to sort of beauty to the lover in the way that that. Uh, uh, Lysias describes in his first speech, you know, the one that is truly driving themselves to the ground. Um, and it is being able to temper that other one. It is the struggle to, to understand what, uh, drives that, you know, proverbial horse and to condition it in such a way that it's actually literally averted away from those very things. I would just say that this is, you know, if you want a, a, a better understanding of this, I, I don't think you have to go any 
well, you do have to go further. But Foucault's Epimelea Eo2, you know, taking care of oneself, taking stock of oneself, heeding the tendencies of oneself, is part of uh, getting to that uh, to that point of control, which is part of the reason why Socrates doesn't actually see beauty in himself at the end of the dialogue, right? Like he he sort of rejects. Uh, this construction it says like well you know i want to be like the philosopher but i am caught up in the eros and so on uh like like you too like well i i mean i guess he does kind of assert that that phaedrus is has the same tendencies given the way in which he responded to the first speech yeah i mean i was just thinking about how i mentioned to you craig um and it's you know because i i come at this two different ways you know with the with my background and you know um, literature that that's kind of how I was first trained so when I read when I read Plato and and you know we'll hit upon it about, about this you know in the in the in the actual speech or in the real the second speech that Socrates gives uh, he has again he has to as we already pointed out turn to myth and and so there is always first of all there is a superfluousness to the dialogues as we brought up but there's also there you know there's this literary aspect to, to Plato's dialogues. It, and it's not just illusions and myths. It's, it's also the staging, right. That I kind of brought up, brought up, you know, cause, um, some dialogues you might have the interlocutor a little bit more, uh, doing more, let's just say functioning more here. Obviously Phaedrus is almost kind of reduced to, it's just, um, just yes, man, and absolutely. absolutely I mean, part of it, <laughs> Taylor, Taylor, you're absolutely correct. Part of it's yes, man, but part of it's the object of desire, obviously, right? So mm-hmm. he is already the 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 you know right in front of him. Socrates has he keeps especially early on in the dialogue, he's calling him a you know a beautiful boy as yourself, such as yourself, right? So he right. is the already the example of the potential beloved who would be impregnated by the philosopher with philosophy, right? If we turn to these other dialogues. So there is, I mean, there is obviously like a kind of, you know, philosophy is always, you know, it's always birth by a man from a man, right? There's all there's So there's, there's this interesting, you know, you obviously have a sort of uh, a homo uh, social activity that's explicitly, you know, you wouldn't even use the term homosexual as, you know, to, to, to go back to what Foucault talks about, you know, with the, the very like birth of this notion. Cause it's, it's not about that for the Greeks, right? It's obviously uh, this question of bodies acting and being acted upon souls acting and being acted upon. Um, but I, uh, what I, what I wanted to point out with the staging is I, I'm interested in this movement from the speech of Lysias that is, given by Phaedrus and supposedly he's reading, right? It's very, they spent a lot of time pointing out the like, Oh, Phaedrus is like, Oh, I, well, I don't know if I could yeah, do it. But what's that? What Socrates is like, what you got there, you know, like, so it's, um, so there's a hiding of the book, right? There's this hiding, there's this dissembling of, of, well, I actually have the, the dead words, you know, on this, on these leaves, um, and then there's, you know, the leaves of the book, the dead book are contrasted with the, the trees that the tree that they come to like sit under, even though like Socrates says, trees don't have anything to teach me. There is this, mm. there is this linguistic play going on uh, that we see. We could talk about other linguistic plays, but my, 
my fascination is this move from the hidden book that is exposed and then Lysias reads it, uh, mm-hmm. obviously with his face towards the page, not towards Socrates, as he would be if he were actually giving, uh, you know, speech from his you know soul, let's just say. And then Socrates hides his face as though right. he's reading, as though he's... Uh, but he says it's because he wants to hide his shame. But I also think it's also so that he doesn't break character and start laughing, right? Mm. Because it is a joke. It is this kind of cosmic. But then the joke is that he takes Lysias' speech and magnifies, so to speak. He kind of magnifies the, uh, and not just to distort, but to, 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 to like, hone in on the kind of distortions he sees rhetoric doing to truth, right? Because mm-hmm. love is, is, is sort of that which can like bring us to truth, but in all, I mean, like to, to, to like bring up how Badu reads Plato, it's, it's that the reason why there's a difference between the philosopher and the sophist or the rhetorician is that the philosopher takes a stand on, on truth. Uh, mm-hmm. So this, 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 you know, we have, we have these classic binaries of like hiding and revealing, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be Heideggerian in that sense, but it's, but it's, it's acting, right? There's a theatrical nature. Are you sure it's not nature. all about disclosure? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, but, that, but that's the thing, right? Is that it's disclosure of, you know, phenomena and like, again, it's, it's a, it's too, in that sense, it's, we're getting abstract because really there's, there's, I really do think there's like a concrete, kind of Plato is doing a kind of taking the dialogue and he is thinking about theatrical sort of directions, right? There is this mm-hmm. Plato, uh, Socrates is kind of going through, he's always performing in, in, in various senses, not just sort of linguistically, not just quote unquote dialectically. There's Plato is, we always have to be very wary that Plato is like pulling the strings and, and Socrates is pulling his strings, right? There's that famous, what, I guess it's the, is it the cover for the, the postcard, you know, Derrida's book with, I think it's. Yeah. Like, with Der- with, with Plato behind. Right. Yeah. yeah it's like the puppeteering. Right. So yeah. the, we, we always, and it's, and it's, and Socrates like lures us in and we get immersed into this, this world where we are potentially in this position of, the, the interlocutor, at least in some of these later dialogues, especially, right, where it is more Socrates as sort of the old master. Right. And so we get, we can kind of lure it into that. And I mean, this is why I said yesterday, I, I said it to someone else, but I was talking about um, how, you know, I had this great teacher, uh, this great class about, um, it was all about the sophists. It, it was this, it was a guy who uh, spoke great English, but he, he was Greek by, um, by like culture and learning. And so he had this whole class about the, it was basically sort of playing off some of these early, you know, sophistical works, the, the, the main sophists that we even have stuff from like Gorgias and playing, playing that off of, of platonic dialogues. Right. So when you read the Gorgias, which in my book, it's the translators say that, Gorgias is supposedly the companion piece to, to Phaedrus, right? When you read the Gorgias, you see Gorgias like ascent to a number of like steps in the, in the logical chain that he explicitly wouldn't make, um, that he 
already shows himself not to be, you know, amenable to in his like encomium of Helen, his praise of Helen or his, uh, his on the non-existent. Um, so that's why I, I'm like, I get lured in all the time because I, I got lured in again reading this, but I, I always have to try to like step back. And maybe that's part of the, the metaphilosophical maneuver you were describing earlier. Yeah, I think there's there's so many ways to run that, right? So just like I'm trying to take the whole framework of of desire. What is desire? How is it produced? What are the dynamics of it? And from an ethical standpoint, can we construct techniques of desire? Not only that, like I said, the whole tableau of the discussion has these little crisscrosses of intensities that create little nodes of desire. We're talking about the hidden book and so forth. One of the things that I was really interested to hear from you, especially you know, in our exchange on uh, on Twitter through the DMs, was talking about the notion of phantasms or the simulacra, rather, haunting the notion of truth in this dialogue. Reading this dialogue, and and like I said, I'm coming to this you know pretty fresh after not having looked at it for a while. It made me realize how paranoid. Socrates is on so many levels. Paranoid about love, paranoid about philosophy, about truth, about friendship, about oration. The theme of paranoia runs through these other threads of desire, you know, some of the other things that we're talking about. Well, say, 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 say a couple more words about, uh, just reiterate what you actually mean by, by paranoia. Like, just, uh, I mean, we could talk about what, the, what it actually means in, in, in Greek, right? About sort of, but that's not what I mean. I mean more like... Um, I think first and foremost... The, the figure of philosophy is one that Socrates wants to be dominant. Plato wants to be dominant. And okay. he wants that right. to displace the figure of, of rhetoric. But it seems like rhetoric, but, and not just rhetoric, we're also talking about writing. Yes. I would say yes. these other forms of discourse. And it's interesting because even the dialectic is one that is, I think is suspect to Socrates, although it's not fully articulated. Otherwise, why would we be making these recourses into myth, <laughs> right? right yeah. When things fall apart, that, that we then go into the, the Greek myths. And so, this is what I mean by paranoia. Like, even seeing yeah. the hidden book, the pages, you know, why would I want to go to a place where there are trees? Everything that I need, philosophically speaking, intellectually speaking, is happening for me right here. So, it's like Socrates is not only physically ensconced in, in one place, he refused uses this nomadism yeah you're right i mean i would say like you know i like that you said the said paranoia because it is this you brought up this question of agon conflict and rivalry um and you know i mean deleuze talks about it too uh in many different places where with plato it's always this question of sort of a hierarchy of claimants and rivals mm, and that's right and and so paranoia if it literally means either beyond or outside of, um, or even beside and mind noose, it's this question of a non-coincidence of, of a non-identity of, of the idea, which would be a contradiction, right? So it's, but it, but it is the movement that we have to do in the dialogue of this. That's very much the sets up the whole dialogue is this, uh, putting oneself in that place where you, you give a false speech, right? You know, and Socrates has to, he gives that speech and he leads his friend on and he, he almost disappoints his friend because this, he makes the same points as Lysias. He just does it in a different order and in this, but he, but he magnifies the monstrousness of it. And so 
and so Fedris is left, but he, but Fedris is totally seduced by this, right? He's totally, he's totally buying into Socrates' first speech. Um, yeah. and, and, and he's, and then Socrates is like, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> right. right. And he's like, that's it. It's done. And Fedris is like, well, you didn't talk about the non-lover. Hmm. Socrates is like, well, I already kind of, you know, with hyperbole, you know, literally I've already shown what the, the lover is. So by contrast, that would be the non-lover. Ergo, that's QED. What I thought was interesting there was in a sense, like, and look, maybe this is like, the I, I'm always guilty of asking the undergrad questions, but I'll do it. Whatever, I got no shame. Um, the up top, you know, Socrates mocks this uh, Lysias speech, then provides a speech with sort of the same limitation, um, except this one is like sort of compelled from the outside, like he's exhausted. Or, you know, he can no longer do it. And that's yes. when we sort of get the palinode, right? And that third that's speech. Right. Um, but right. it, to me, it's, it's just an interesting sort of moment. And I wonder what that served other than the sort of like standard rhetorician's response which would be, oh, well, the content in the second speech was sufficient enough that a reader could simply or a listener could simply deduce because it's never that way. <laughs> in the dialogues, right? You know, so I, I'll fight with the the greatest of uh, rhetoric professors on that one. But yeah, I, I to, to me that was particularly interesting that limitation on on Socrates' first speech. Yeah, I mean, I, I I I do think that you know if we think about Socrates being put to death for uh, you know it's corrupting the youth, but it's also it's more literally like impiety. I mean, Socrates stops not just because of shame or because he's laughing his reasoning is uh very quickly this question of violating like the sacred non-piety like, i mean that's what his there, concern there, is but but also it's almost this but it's also this location this landscape they keep referring back to like the with the cicadas and the song and the tree and the brook and the heat of the day they're always reminding us of this that this is taking place like a, a, as a scene and there is a, the site itself is supposedly a uh, hundred yards down from, you know, um, what, what the fuck, where Boreas took off with that nymph. You know what I'm saying? Right. right. There, no, no, there's, right. So the, 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 all of these elements to keep us in mind that there's something and, and, and even, and you notice that he doesn't invoke the muse in his first speech. He doesn't invoke until he actually, the palinode is, is when he invokes the, the muses. So the, even there, there's this, but uh, the palinode itself, I mean, he, he has to apologize. He has to apologize to the, to the sort of the, the natural spirits or the, the, the gods that inhabit the place. They might, they might strike him down. They might uh, either strike him blind, as he gives the example of, or worse. Yeah, and if and if he becomes you know blind or deaf, he says you know these questions can no longer be sufficiently answered, right? The philosophy. Well, castration. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. that's a kind of mental or really spiritual, right? Because the word suke has just like the word geist and esprit. We don't really have this in English, but you know, spirit is uh, soul is, is is already kind of equipped with mental attributes um so i don't i i i find it i want to go back to what craig said though i mean craig keeps pushing this this the paranoia bit right well the paranoia bit, but but no back to 
this question of desire. And I wondered, mm-hmm. do you guys, what, what translations are you working off of? Do you have the Hackett translation? Um, the Hackett collection, but the translations vary on the collection. And the Joet translation is different. Oh, it's um, totally different. What yeah. you linked me, Craig. So I'm working off of so what this you So this is Na- it's in the- Na- Nahamas and Woodruff. Yep. yep. Okay, I'm just wondering if you if you have the actual complete collection, the, the big red book, um, Plato's complete it, works. Yes, it should be that's, on page. That's what we're working out of. Okay, good. That's so. If you did, you guys see the footnote on five twenty nine? It's the twenty eighth footnote of the whole piece. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so five twenty nine. Can you give me the yeah. desire? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. You so what I was this. gonna what I was gonna read to you, um, Craig, is please that. So this is two fifty one C in terms of. It's five twenty eight on the in the pages, but okay. he's talking. He's he's so he's he's in his second speech, and he's talking about. Um, uh, he he gives a kind of definition of desire that would have already it would have had a kind of wordplay that I think the 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 contemporary Greek would have gotten that there's a there's a linguistic playfulness going on, and that's why the translator mm-hmm. has this note. But he Socrates says. Um, Talks, he's talking about the soul and, and growing wings. And he says, when it looks upon the beauty of the boy and takes in the stream of particles flowing into it from his beauty. Um, and then parentheses is that is why it's called, that is why this is called desire. When it's watered and warmed by this, then all its pain subsides and is replaced by joy, right? So it's this, this movement of, you know, trying to burst those wings through our, our little soul, uh, uh, you know, container cocoon Cocoon. yeah i like that footnote 28 says desire is chimeros the derivation is from mere particles uh let's see i don't know how to pronounce that but e and i something like that right uh go and then rain rain is flow right so it's this portmanteau word um and again it's possible that that um that that's this is a more technical term than maybe an everyday term in Greek. Just the way that 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 parenthetical aside in the in the speech, right? This is why it's called desire. Um, I wonder. I wonder if it's you know that'd be something for for a scholar. But in any case, this question of uh, desire as as flows is is interesting, right? I mean, this question mm. is it's a it's a stream of particles. I mean, there's almost a quantum aspect to it um without any sort of intention on plato's part so uh so you know if we wanted to fetishize language in a kind of heideggerian way that we're going back to the to the old words i think it's i think it's pretty cool what the translators do there at least to take the time to to say well this is important enough for the you know for yeah the i mean person I, it's definitely in relation <laughs> it's definitely in relation to to Eros and contrasted from Eros. Right. Um, you know, what necessarily that can help us with as it relates to, to Craig's question? I don't know. I'm, look, again, maybe this is just me like carrying my burdens to every text I, I read. Um, you know, I, I, the one thing that Craig brought up, which I thought was interesting, was uh, the way in which uh 
these two chariots to bring, or these two horses to bring these back, <laughs> operate in a sense of like conflict. There's sort of an agonism between the two. And that is what sort of can form, uh, eventually this eros in relation to imeros. And it, it almost reminds me of, uh, that part in, in daybreak or dawn, depending on what you have. Suppose you were in the marketplace one day and somebody laughed at you, right? And you can have all these different responses, but the response that manifests is the result of a particular drive, yes. a, a particular element of your being that was triggered by that event. You know, lying right. in wait, you know, it was finally sprung out. And in this dialogue, there's a moment like that where, you know, once the two lovers are, you know, finally at this moment of consummation or whatever, you know, sort of a sexual, physical love, it, that is when this sort of one drive is allowed to have its, in this translation, its little fun. It, it gets its due. That's right. Yeah. Um, it, it's complete subordination, right? right? This, is, this is where Nietzsche comes in full exactly. on, right? And where you, you can probably talk about Klosowski and his reading of Nietzsche as well. Basically, Plato, he's articulating, he, he has his own little body without organs, you know, in the form of this chariot, right? But I mean, it's not, there quite, it is. As yeah. <laughs> it's not quite as sophisticated as that. However, um, you know, you have the white horse and the black horse, you know, can it get any more dark than that? And where ultimately, like you said, the dark horse, the one that has the meaty shoulders, as, as Plato say, he will get its due. Remember, that's the, the horse of excess, where the other one is the horse of rationality, right? And so, ultimately, right. Th this entire image that he presents, and the object of desire being the sort of third term that negotiates the transfer of power from the black horse completely to the white horse, right, is really the process of internalizing resentment in, in some sense. This is what Nietzsche's raging against, is that there's going to be one drive, the rationally headed, entirely cephalic drive that dominates all others, uh, to what end, right? To create a rational being that knows how to stay its desires and ultimately render any aberrant impulse as a deviation from some sort of divine imperative. And I know we mentioned maybe not bringing Derrida into the discussion, but one of the things that I appreciate about him is that his interpretation of the Phaedrus brings in a set of terms that I think are very useful in terms of the way that we're developing a discussion of desire here. I think there needs to be sort of, we need to do a little bit more digging when it comes to resentment. Um, like, I, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily satisfied with the understanding of uh, sort of this internal suppression as being manifest in uh, Rizontemont as it's uh, conjured up by Nietzsche. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder, you know, and, and you toyed with this idea uh, when we were talking, I think yesterday, uh, like, is Socrates sort of the figure of Rizontemont throughout these dialogues? In yeah, a certain I think so. Sense. And that I actually think is is not only like awesome, <laughs> but I also think it's definitely worth looking at um, academically, particularly given the disdain <laughs> that Nietzsche has for Plato. It's a it's a it's a casual but real one. Um, you know, he refers to like the Republic as soporific and 
you know, he's g- going to sort of lean into the realm of the Bacchic, which I think comes up here once or twice. It and, does. Yeah, and he's yeah. he's going to want to do more with that and not simply treat it as sort of mindless pleasure in the way that his contemporary classicists did. Uh, it's it's part of the reason why I think I'm enjoying Birth of Tragedy so much. Um, in the Birth of Tragedy, too, is where Nietzsche confronts Plato in the figure of Socrates. Even Nietzsche, too, he struggles because I think the one thing in this dialogue that he's going to be attracted to and maybe not have, or should I say, he would be reserved in applying criticism to is Socrates' valorization of madness over the figure of Lysias. Very important. I was talking about this with an undergrad professor of mine because, you know, I spent a lot of time on, on history of madness and madness and civilization uh, in my thesis. And, you know, Foucault spends a lot of time on the Phaedrus in the second volume of the history of sexuality. A lot of time. Um, because part of what the second volume of the history of sexuality does is it sort of challenges a lot of the assertions about Greek sexuality that it was again sort of this this it it dealt with the pleasures of the body in a sort of non mitigated way that the way in which they actually went about having these homosocial relationships was just almost like laden with with intellectual and physical jouissance and Foucault is going to say no there's like a true struggle there. Um, Beyond that sort of engagement, I almost wish Foucault had tapped into the Phaedrus to discuss madness when he talks about madness as sort of unreason, and not unreason in the sense of being unreasonable, sort of in the vulgar term, but sort of this realm that conventional rationalist discourse does not have access to. That if we take our framework as one of being, uh, you know, pinned and, and tethered directly to the way in which we understand rationality in sort of the post-Cartesian world, that it doesn't have access to those operations. Let me interrupt you because sure. I'm just going to plug a book right now from my former professor. I haven't read it yet. It just came out. It's that book, Beyond Philosophy. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've been talking about By those. Charles Scott and Nancy Tuana. Just by reading the the book jacket, you get a sense that's exactly what they're going to talk about in there. And I just wanted to give a shout out to my former professor. In the book, they're using Nietzsche, Foucault, and the work of Gloria Ansaldua. And it seems like the book is centered around the question of what are some of the ways that philosophy has made an account of going beyond reasonable sense, meaning, counting, and value to make connections with different forms of enlivenment. That's super exciting maybe you know maybe if maybe we can deal with it ourselves on this little podcast i hope think. so yeah um, but yeah i i i think the way in which he goes about dealing with madness as sort of these gifts in a certain sense from the outside that can be imparted upon the subject is something to me that is Utterly fascinating. I'd, I'd have to look at what the actual, like, I'd actually have to go back and do like real philology. Ew, gross. Actual scholarship. <laughs> and see exactly what the, like, uh, the phonetic and linguistic relationships between madness as it was in, in German and French in the post Cartesian era and 
how it operates, you know, philologically and linguistically in in ancient Greece. Sort of do your own little genealogy there. But like, um, yeah, I think I think that when we talk about madness, at first there's this sort of really pernicious element to it. Right, Socrates is like, oh, you know, it, it leads you to be brash. You pursue the pleasures of the body. You know, the 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 bright horse that is leading up to the mind, you know, is pulled down by this, you know, the the disease of the flesh. Um, but then, again, as Taylor talks about, there's this real change of tune. Uh, in in fact, madness is it can be something beautiful. In fact, so much of the great things we have are the result of madness, and so on. Yeah, there's um, an extreme reservation uh, about a certain kind of madness for Socrates, right? But um, definitely a valorization of a divine-inspired madness that gets inverted in Nietzsche somewhat. But it, it's interesting because in talking about Deleuze, we've talked about the concept of the outside, and it's already been brought up in this discussion. And when I was going through Derrida's... I'm sorry. No, no uh, thank you. Uh, when I was going through Derrida's uh, essay on Plato's pharmacy, he talks about the outside, and there's a number of terms that he brings into this discussion. One of the things that Socrates is trying to do in this essay, and and, and other places in Plato, is to gain knowledge, right? And what is knowledge for Plato? It takes the form of a remembrance. It's a memory, right, that was erased upon our drinking of the lethic waters before entering this new life. In order to achieve knowledge, basically what we're doing is clearing a path to that divine knowledge that's already pre-existent. It's interesting how Derrida situates this notion of, of memory against the concept of the outside. And so, right now, I'm trying to speak to people who are working on this concept. You know, if you're writing a paper, uh, whether it be on Deleuze, The Outside, or Derrida, Derrida's essay on Plato's pharmacy is such a go-to. And there's a quote here that I, I just will read. Derrida says, The outside, in scare quotes, does not begin at the point where what we now call the psychic and physical meet, but at the point where the nemi, and that's the Greek word M-N-E-M-E, instead of being present to itself in its life as a movement of truth, is supplanted by the archive. Here we're talking about papers and things like that, writing. Uh, is supplanted by the archive, excited by a sign of rememoration, of commemoration. In the space of writing, the space as writing is opened up in the violent movement of this surrogation, in the difference between nemi and hyponesis. The outside is already within the work of memory. And I find that to be interesting because what Derrida goes on to say is that for Plato, he dreams of a kind of memory that has no sign. That to me is interesting. Imagine a kind of divine memory, a kind of knowledge, a kind of truth that has no referent, no representation to it. And it made me think, isn't this exactly what the figure of Rosantamont hopes for the most? They want a validation of the power that we can characterize Rosantamont as having, but one that's absent of the stamp of validation of a representation. 
And I, I think there's an interesting line of thought to take there in conjunction with the outside, because what we see Socrates doing in this essay is, or in this dialogue, is really interesting. Like, I, I just imagine him, like, either sitting on a rock or some kind of bench or, you know, anywhere else. And there's places that he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go into nature, the sphere of nature, where there's trees, cicadas, basically a, a, a boundless field of untethered desire, almost animalistic pleasures. But the other thing that he fears, his paranoia, is the writing itself, right? It's it's the hidden book. Right. It's the orator, right? And it's interesting to see that there are these two paranoid objects, like the sort of unbounded field of desire being one of them that we would associate with you know, fusus or right, but then there's this other thing in writing too that also haunts the specter of truth. And um, I'm really glad we came back to this essay because it kind of ties into a lot of things that I'm just kind of informally working on. Uh, but maybe we can pick up a discussion of the outside. I'm, I'm curious what Taylor thinks about that. This question about a writing or a text, divine or not, our pure idea, whatever that would have no sign. I don't, I don't know if I would put it that way, at least in terms of the, the language set out in, in the Phaedra, especially at the very end in the last few pages, because, you know, for Socrates, it's the very fact that writing needs an external support. So it, 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 it would always be in need of a living, you know, breathing discourse speech to, to come in, like help, focus its sign, right? Like an arrow. So I think that's what Socrates is worried about is the fact that, that um, kind of like, you know, a hundred years, a couple hundred years later, where you'll have this parable of, of, uh, you know, Jesus will tell the parable of, of sort of the farmer sowing seeds, right? That's kind of how proselytization is to a certain extent, right? It's just, you're throwing seeds out there. Some of them land on fallow, fallow ground. Some of them land on the, uh, on the pavement. And, and, and for, for Socrates, at least his, his critique of, of writing is that it, it just, it just sort of puts its signs out wherever and just throws them out. It doesn't, it doesn't discriminate and choose. And, and here for Socrates, the fallow ground would be a proper soul, right? A, a soul who with the potential become philosopher. So we, again, I mean, Derrida will, He'd go through all this, right, with the whole notion of dissemination. And that's what we have here, right? We have this notion of the writing just kind of disseminating um, at ad infinitum without any sort of uh, aim or precision. Just It's just always doing that. And on the one hand, it needs sort of the right soul to sort of guide it. And on the other hand, it needs a target, right? So it needs, it needs someone shooting that arrow, uh, and then uh, a proper uh, bullseye for that. And, and that's, I mean, in that sense, I mean, it just continues the same sort of notion, uh, the, the, the same metaphorical line of a, uh, of a kind of uh, sexual, you know, basis. I mean, that's, that's what the, at least the images where it's all about inseminating uh, the proper boy with philosophy and not merely disseminating indiscriminately. I, but I guess what's frustrating there, and maybe it's just because like I have that like grad student hatred of Derrida because he's so difficult. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. Like I, I thought Derrida is just really like 
okay, so yes, it, it, it does. The language technically does like have broader targets, but in of grammatology, all of those sort of grand assertions. So words like is to be, you know, Derrida takes the Husserlian or Heideggerian approach and just puts those words under erasure. They they don't actually hit their target. They don't mean what they should to to him. So in a sense, like, are we trying to work at it from both ways? I mean, is this that sort of the pharmacon where it is both like the the remedy and the poison? Like, I, I I'm lost <laughs> with this. I I think the the thing that I gravitated towards uh, has to do with the paternalism um, that. Derrida ascribes to speech overriding, right? Yes. So right. here's some here's some terms that Derrida attaches to speech. First of all, the father, logos, even capital, right? In the sense of capitalism, capital uh, are all characteristics or other figures that get pegged to the notion of speech. And then Derrida goes on to sort of uh, recount the myth of Ra and Thoth of Egyptian myth. And Thoth is this kind of underworld figure who um, is positioned as the son of Ra. He's, Thoth is also the god of language, and that's why Derrida picks uh, him up. And so, basically, how the myth goes is that Ra appoints Thoth to be the steward of the heavens while Ra sleeps, and that's where you get the sun and the moon and, and so forth, right? But the important thing is that there is this subordination of the god of language by this other paternalistic, logos-infused figure. But more than that, the way that Derrida goes about it, it's not the, the sort of classical Western syzygy of like Jesus of Nazareth and Satan or Hercules and Hades. The way that Derrida sort of renders these figures is that on the one end, you have Ra, who's the father figure, and you have Thoth, who's the figure of the son. But rather than being like opposite ends of the pole, right? It's not like, okay, here's positive and negative. The pole that Thoth occupies is one of non-identity, indeterminacy. It's, it's a figure of death, but not death as the negation of life, but death as the repetition of life and death. And therefore, this figure of Thoth is one who's eternally absent. So, here comes Derrida's language of absence, right? And so, with speech, and now kind of laying all this back onto the Phaedrus, there is this figure of eternal absence, the, the specter of difference that haunts Logos, it haunts Socrates and his valorization of speech overriding throughout. But this figure never appears as a negative figure. And so, one of the ways that then my, my move that I would make from there is to talk about the way that the dispersion that happens with writing, if we, if we go back to thinking about, you know, speech acts and, and uh, semiotics as being a field of dispersed desire, writing is a kind of desire that not just gets away. And in the Derridian sense, it's this kind of, it comprises this body without organs that unsettles the body without organs of truth, of speech, and all of the things that Socrates ascribes to being part of the, the, the rational dimension of, of living. So, writing is a repetition of life and death, one that's constantly 
you know, shaking the pillars and foundations of the rational project that comes out of Plato. And it's interesting, too, because other characteristics that are ascribed to both um, Ra and Thoth is, so, so, Ra, he's the king, right? And Thoth, he's the usurper. He's conspiracy. He's secrecy, right? And this kind of ties in to some of the things that we we're talking about in the Andrew Culp episode and the Bataille episode somewhat. And how does this, um, how does this play out in the figure of the king? Well, the king, given that there is no tangible figure of the usurper, it plays out as a paranoia. And so, I mean, just like I said, in these 48 hours, I'm just kind of like piecing together this little thesis. I mean, it's really rough around the edges. I mean, you would, you would, you would definitely have to turn to um, the notion of, you know, the paranoid machine or the paranoid regime of signs in mm. the Oedipus because it's precisely yeah. with overcoding and the rise of the state and the despotic regime that they even turn to Derrida and look at the rise of writing because it's precisely with this, uh, this sort of hierarchization, this hierarchical relation between what we can call it empire or whatever that's kind of anachronistic, but uh, of an ascendant uh, of an ascendant culture uh, over a subordinate culture. It's precisely that, that writing um, gets its birth and dissemination and we have codes of laws and these other things. Right. So I think there is something that I find interesting that they link it to the, to the paranoid uh, mode and, and take it, in this other direction, you know, here that might maybe deterritorialize too quickly sort of the, the line you're on, but I think that you could see that linking up. Um, and, you know, this, this notion about, and you're right. I mean, Derrida, even I think it's 275 D at the end. He's uh, Socrates says, well, if, you know, writing, it's not just, you know, it needs, it needs uh, someone to be there to like guide it because he says it needs its father's support because if it's, if, if writing is attacked unfairly, then someone has to come and speak up for it. Uh, daddy, mm-hmm. daddy does obviously. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's, and, and I think that what, what again, what again, Plato, um, you know, and, and it, I almost think of the meme, like, you know, we should improve culture somewhat. Oh, you, you, uh, you, uh, what you blew you participate in culture or whatever the fuck society. Sorry. Let's just say society. I mean, like here, Plato is writing a dialogue and one of the main points is how writing is sort of. Yeah. Worthless. So there's, there, there is, there's there is a paradox there. Yeah. There is <laughs> yeah. A, not, not a paradox, but a, but irony, we, have, we, right. we, have, we have to take that irony at face value and, 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 and ask whether or not, um, you know, are, are we to, not if we don't see that, then we kind of get we kind of get you know we get we get baited a little bit and yeah. um, and I I do think that that what Plato leaves out obviously is that Socrates at least as far as we know and what we see in the dialogues he chooses his interlocutors mm-hmm. um, and you know I think that for him the fact that he could get into a potential dialogue or someone could talk to him who's a, who's a drunk or an idiot or whatever that he would scoff at and not waste his time with. That's the same with writing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, why, 
why, and again, this is why you're calling it paranoia, mm-hmm. um, but it's the same thing, right? And maybe, you know, a, a book could potentially talk to anyone. There's obviously a surplus there. Um, rather than a, rather than a lack and precisely that Socrates could talk to anyone. He chooses not to, um, there are those with whom one does not, uh, you know, trek, right. You don't trek down a, a philosophical, unless it's a demonstration, right. So we have the case of, you know, uh, the Mino and, and the demonstration with the slave, but that's always, that's almost like a prop, you know, again, in a theatrical scenery. And so if a, if a drunk stumbles onto the scene, you know, in the, in the middle of symposium, that's kind of edited out, right? It's, it's not a part, it doesn't make it to the, uh, it doesn't make it past the, the editing floor. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I do want to go back a little bit to the Rosantimonte because sure. Plato really tries to make, Socrates out to be like this Uber Chad who's gotten so <laughs> much, he's gotten so much ass and dick, all that he could take. You know, he just, he only talks about it now and theorizes about it. He doesn't even need it anymore. And this, you see this in the symposium, <laughs> you see this in the Fedris where it is this back and forth of, of, you know, is Fedris seducing Socrates, Socrates seducing Phaedrus, you know, there's all this literature about it. Same with Alcibiades. Um, and it's this, it's almost like, you know, showing, exemplifying that Socrates now is only, he only wants to fuck you like your soul, right? He's not, <laughs> he's past the, the bodily thing. He's had all that and more. Um, His nine inch nails phase is over. Right. So it's, <laughs> So I guess that that's where I would say, you know, Rosantima might be, uh, and then you guys were kind of wondering whether or not Socrates participates in it. I, I just think that, you know, for Nietzsche, there's, there's, there's obviously twofold. It's obviously that, that Socrates is sort of,